0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The international community, did you watch the 11 o'clock news last night? My goodness, the images uh, coming across uh, from Syria are are just heart-wrenching. The international community continues to denounce the chemical attacks this week that occurred in Syria. Uh, Here's a clip from... This is a reporter on the death toll in Syria.
1: They're still looking for survivors. Rescue workers have gone to homes where people were found hiding in shelters still from the day before, fearing the gas. Some families were particularly hardly hit. I'm speaking to one family now that lost more than 20 of its members, and they're still struggling to bury them.
0: That is reporter Sarah El Deeb talking about what has occurred in Syria. Let's bring in Rolf Holmbo. He is former Danish ambassador to Syria, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is with us now. Hello, Rolf. How are you today?
2: Very fine, thank you. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, Rolf, over, over and above the, the, the horrific images that are coming out of, of of Syria, looking at this from a Western perspective, All we're hearing about when we look down south is Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia. How does this change that discussion?
2: Well, uh, let's see if it actually does change the discussion. But uh, clearly, uh, it puts it to a point. uh, You have a situation where um, the Secretary of State Tillerson have taken the stance that Assad is a political reality and we have to uh, proceed on that basis. And then you have a situation where um, Assad and the regime forces have carried out a gas attack with probably an, uh, in, in all likelihood a nerve agent with a, a carrying out a mass, mass casualty attack. So basically you have a situation where in Europe you have reactions uh, that, will tilt it, that are tilting towards military action against Assad um, to making this stop. And then it will be interesting to see how this develops uh, if the U.S., who has also condemned the crime, uh, will come out and uh, and be part of something that could uh, change the, the whole situation on the ground in Syria. The only thing we basically need to have a political solution in Syria is the removal of Assad. A military intervention does not have to be, as in Iraq or in Afghanistan, but could be limited to the sole objective of removing Assad. If that threat was on the table we would immediately have a situation where we could probably have a, a real sustainable political solution in Syria.
0: How do, you, how do you have military action against Assad from the West when Russia is backing Assad? Where does that leave? I mean, is that an attack on Assad? Is that not an attack on Russia as well?
2: Not necessarily, because uh, it is not the same as intervening in the Syria war. What it could be would basically be Uh, a military threat to remove Assad uh, unless the Russians and the Iranians did so. Uh, And that threat would be uh, to bomb Assad and the few henchmen around him that we normally call the Syrian regime. I mean, there's a difference between the Syrian state and the Syrian army and the Syrian regime. The regime is responsible for the war crimes. The regime is responsible for all the Uh, torture uh, chambers and all the uh, concentration camps and prisons where two to three hundred thousand Syrian citizens currently are being held under the worst possible of conditions Um, and that could be very actually quite limited airstrikes uh, that could help to remove Assad and it it could even be done uh, by cruise missiles it didn't even have to involve uh, actual aerial bombing and that would not involve Russian forces and that would not uh, involve other forces uh, from the Syrian army even it would just be uh, removing Assad from the equation and then the moment you do that you actually make a political solution a negotiated political solution possible because right now Assad is the one person that is holding back any political solution in inside Syria
0: does Russia have an appetite for that do they want to sort out?
2: Uh, at this point in time I think Russia wants a political solution, but they want a political solution with Assad. And they have some interests in Syria, not least linked to the energy sector. Uh, and Assad has personally signed those contracts. Uh, so they, they want a regime that they have uh, a privileged access to. Uh, if, they, if they don't have access, they don't know if they have a, you know, a proxy regime in the Middle East. And they're looking to going back to the Cold War way of doing things, that you have proxy regimes in regions of the world. Um, So I think that they would, or they're arguing for the fact that Assad should stay and have a political solution with Assad at this point in time. But if Assad is gone, they would have to negotiate on a different level, and Iran would have to do the same. And then they would have to negotiate a power-sharing model inside Syria, and that could change the whole political dynamic of the situation.
0: Uh, obviously, in regard to the chemical attacks, everyone blaming everyone else. Where did this come from? How, who 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 did this?
2: Well, I mean, there's very little doubt that the Syrian regime carried out uh, an airstrike uh, with uh, a nerve a gas agent that most probably is a nerve agent. Uh, that's judging from what doctors have said in Turkey, what doctors have said inside uh, Syria, what. Uh, French reporters have said uh, who were on the scene inside Syria. Um, It was probably not chlorine gas. They had carried out many, uh, many chlorine gas attacks in the last two years. Uh, But it was probably uh, um, a nerve agent. And it was probably an airstrike. There was an airstrike and there were no conventional uh, bombs being being dropped at the time. Uh, And then you had uh, uh, this chemical agent uh, coming into the air. Um, And a thousand people, uh, upwards of a thousand people got affected by it, Uh, something between 78 and 107 killed and upwards of 600 or more being uh, wounded or affected by it. Uh, So basically, that's what it looks like if you look at all the facts. And then you have the Russian claim that they were bombing a chemical warehouse facility, uh, which is strange because the Syrian regime did not declare this chemical storage facility when the... UN's organization to remove the chemical weapons after the 2013 attack were in Syria. And if they actually bombed a chemical warehouse facility, that would be a war crime in itself. So basically we are in a situation where the Russians is is claiming that they were bombing gas that was actually on the ground. And that was the same claim that the Russians used for the 2013 attack when it turned out to be a blatant lie. Hmm. So we have a situation where they're trying to mitigate the effects of what the regime has done.
0: How does Russian feel knowing that it's being drawn into this, labelled as a part of this war crime? You know, what does that do for Russia? I
2: think it does uh, place some pressure on Russia. I mean, Russia does not want this to escalate. And what I think Assad might have done is basically to calculate that the West will not react militarily uh, to this atrocity. Uh, So the only way of stopping atrocities like this would be to accommodate with Assad. So they are sort of reading what is happening in the West. Um, Rex Tillerson coming out, uh, Assad is a political reality. Turkey coming up already last summer saying Assad is a political reality. So they're reading uh, what is going on in the West as weakness and they're exploiting this. So they're applying pressure for the West to accommodate with Assad so he would stop these type of attacks. And Russia is being caught in the middle. I'm not sure. I have no information that Russia knew about this attack um, at this point in time anyway. uh, But uh, it is something that is embarrassing to Russia because they have to handle uh, the uh, negative consequences of it in the United Nations Security Council and internationally. Uh, so I think it's a difficult situation for Russia.
0: So if the United States or a Western power goes in and tries to take Assad out, the Russians won't interfere with that?
2: Uh, I mean, the Russian force that is actually inside Syria is really not that significant. Uh, I mean, it is. I mean, if you compare to uh, the international coalition that is currently fighting ISIS, uh, with uh, uh, an unprecedentedly high number of countries with components within that coalition, Uh, it is nothing. It is nothing at all. So they couldn't do much if it was. And if you had a limited campaign that would be directed directly against Assad, it wouldn't necessarily uh, be something that would involve or even come close to Russian assets.
0: What happens if Assad is removed? Um, Does that not then create a vacuum? What fills that?
2: then you would have to fill it with a person uh, from the regime side obviously uh, that would not have the same position as assad i mean it's not like assad is popular even with his own support groups uh, but uh, you know people with his minorities uh, say they have to live with assad because right now it's the only alternative but if assad is not there they will have to find another what it would do because if assad went away i mean the Fifty or so people around him, his henchmen, really, that we call the Syrian regime, would have to go as well because they, their position would be would be very, very uh, uh, strenuous. They are responsible for the war crimes and the uh, crimes against humanity that have been carried out during this war. So they would go different places. That would mean that the security apparatuses would no longer be necessary to keep, you know, the the people in repression. And as long as you don't have that you can actually negotiate a political solution. Right now, as a political solution with Assad basically is a solution where uh, the opposition would be offered access to, to uh, the, if you want, soft minister posts in the government, the social and the economic posts, whereas army, defense, and uh, security, obviously, and <clears throat> the justice sector would stay with the regime, which basically means nothing is changing. So if you could arrive at a situation that Assad is not there, that one thing alone would make it possible to negotiate a power sharing model like you have in Lebanon. The power sharing model that ended the Lebanese civil war in 1990 has, for all its drawbacks, has proven able to keep the peace in Lebanon, which has been under strain many times, but it has, it has hold, uh, hold tight since then. And it's a system where you have the the, the very sectarian groups uh, they the christians the sunnis the shias alawites in the case of syria they share power political power and they have checks and balances against each other and they share the military power uh, through a joint military council in a first phase and then slowly these groups would merge into joint uh, military and security forces
0: <clears throat> Assad is saying that he is just fighting terrorism. How does he justify this?
2: Well, basically, any, anybody—excuse <clears throat> me—anybody who's against Assad is called a terrorist. Hmm. Uh, so that's—I mean—he's just using uh, a word that has a certain ring in our countries yeah. uh, to, you know, denote uh, his opponents. When he when he says terrorist, he means uh, opposition, and he means rebels of any color. They're all terrorists. So, I mean, if you look to who's fighting ISIS, uh, the Syrian regime is studiously trying not to fight ISIS. They, have, they, they actually support ISIS financially by buying gas and uh, oil from them on a monthly basis at uh, millions of dollars worth. Every single month they're doing that. Uh, the U.S. and the U.N. have put people on the sanctions list for being assets intermediaries with ISIS in doing this. Um, so, I mean, they have no interest in fighting ISIS. They have an interest in fighting the moderate rebels. So they concentrate their attacks on the moderate rebels that they call terrorists. And ISIS, they let it grow because it looks the rebels. It makes the rebels look bad. They all look like extremists, which is not the case. The, the big bulk of the rebel force is moderate rebels. But they look like they're all extremists because you have something like the Nusra Front and you have something like ISIS.
0: Uh, how long can Assad keep this up? I mean, there, there's not much of his country left. How long can he keep this up? I think the strategy of Assad basically
2: is to keep pushing out the rebels from the central part of uh, Syria. Uh, he knows he probably cannot push them out of all areas of Syria, but he wants to push them into areas that are not viable as uh, independent entities. So what is happening is he's concentrating his forces to removing the rebels from the eastern suburbs to Damascus, which is the biggest rebel threat to his rule because it's only a few kilometers away from his, his uh, uh, fiefdom. And he's trying to push them out of Hama and other areas in the center of town, like he removed them from Aleppo. So what is happening is that the Sunni majority of the country is being pushed into reservations on the perimeter of the country. The Idlib pocket. Uh, up in the north towards the Turkish border and the Dada pocket and Golan pocket down to the south to the Jordanian border, uh, which would basically mean that in the first instance, if there is a peace solution and he's pushed out the rebels from the central part of town, uh, sorry, of, of the country, he controls the viable infrastructure, economic, physical infrastructure. He can, has the sea access. He has the access to the different uh, borders. His part of the country would be viable. And then I think he hopes that he could bring in the other parts at a later stage in time.
0: Uh, Obviously, we've all seen the images which were on the news last night. How does this change the discussion when the world is condemning what is going on? Will this be in another 24 hours, another news story, or does this have legs?
2: Well, I think Assad is gambling that the West will not be willing to mount a credible military threat against him. So he's gambling. He wants basically to get the West to accommodate with him through an attack like this that happens at the same time as a big international conference on the future of Syria in Europe, in Brussels. Uh, and then I see, you know, in some reactions uh, 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 in, in partner countries in Europe uh, that, again, is going you know, over the level and seeing that we should actually do something militarily. And you see this from France, you see this from other political circles inside Europe, that we should actually do something about this and mount a credible threat against Assad.
0: Is the Russian connection stopping us from doing that?
2: Um, At this point in time, uh, I think the interesting thing to see will be how the U.S. reacts. Mm. Uh, If they can deconflict, if they can either just, you know, not do anything against it or, or, or spearhead any action on this, which would just be another message to Assad. He can commit any war crime he wants, any crime against humanity he wants, he will get away with it, Uh, or whether they're willing to do something. And if they're willing to do something, then the U.S. would have to balance its acts vis-à-vis Russia. How do they keep Russia out of this equation? Or they could also choose to apply pressure on Russia. But it would have to be a pressure on Russia where the U.S. is saying, if you don't do something about Assad, we are going to do it. Uh, so they could choose different strategies. But at this point in time, if there was sort of a, a move towards mounting a credible military threat against Assad, I think many European countries would go with it.
0: Does Trump's sympathy towards Russia complicate this?
2: At this point in time, it's it's hard to see exactly how it, how it would spill out. Um, it does complicate it. Uh, but... There is also a way of keeping Russia out of the equation with Mm -hmm. political will and uh, political brinkmanship, which is needed. Um, Either that or we just lean back and do nothing about it like we did in 2013, which will just open the door for Assad to continue whatever war crime. That he wants to commit,
0: uh, Trump obviously uh, blaming Barack Obama for this, uh, which I guess is not uncommon. We've certainly seen that before. Uh, he seems to go backwards more than forwards. Uh, that being said, uh, is there a, is there a point here? Did Barack Obama do enough with, for example, twenty thirteen?
2: There has been a there has been a criticism uh, that there was not enough done, and clearly uh, it was the closest we came to actually mounting a credible threat against Assad. And the moment that that threat actually became credible, the Russians immediately reacted and made for a solution that would avoid uh, airstrikes against Assad. So they caved in immediately. Uh, I mean, Russians, they don't respect weakness, uh, but they understand a slap in the face, to paraphrase Humphrey Bogart. I mean, basically, if we want to do something, if we want to change what is happening in Syria, we need to be willing to give that slap in the face.
0: It seems that uh, in the political climate in the West, after uh, so many years at war, whatever war it is, wherever our troops are involved, immediately after five or so years, it seems we got to get our troops out, got to get our troops out, got to bring our troops home, all of this sort of thing. Is that archaic thinking in the sense that you always have to monitor what is going on in all parts of these worlds, in all parts of the world? We can never walk away from this.
2: I mean, obviously, we are in, a, in, a, in, a, in an era of globalization, and what happens in other parts of the world does impact our part of the world as well. I mean, obviously, there's been uh, migration, there's been terrorism, there's been ISIS, uh, there has been enormous economic cost, all negative consequences of the Syria war. Also, there's been a coming together of uh, authoritarian regimes like Russia, uh, Assad, Iran, and others that are strengthening their onslaught on uh, on democracy, and democracy is basically weakened current by handling the, the, the processes of globalization in our own countries. So basically, I mean, there's many negative consequences that are hitting us as well, uh, and they can only get worse. As long as Assad is there, the negative consequences will just get worse, and the Middle East will be dragged down into a vicious circle of bad governance and non-development that will offset other conflicts in the region. Uh, So it's only a matter of when we will have to do something. And we're thinking if we have to intervene, it will be something like Iraq or something like Afghanistan, open-ended, no clear results. Uh, But if you think about the experiences we've actually drawn from those uh, interventions, we have to look at a different way of doing stabilization. And if you look at that, it would be working much more uh, in the American sense by, through, and with local uh, political forces and military forces to achieve the results and steer the the development in the right direction. I think our agendas have been too short. I mean, you, you don't stabilize a country like Libya or like Iraq or like Afghanistan in a very short time. What you need to do is to have a very long time horizon where you say that stabilization in these countries is going to take... 25 to 50 years. In Lebanon, it took 25 years to arrive at a situation that was, you know, taking the country stable out of the civil war that ended in 1990. Um, So we just need to think about new ways of doing it, new instruments of doing it. And we're already slowly evolving those ways, which will not mean open-ended military engagements for our forces, not big contingents anyway, but much more intelligent and smart ways of doing things on the security side and working much more sustainably through local actors on the political
0: side. Rolf Holmbo has been with us, former Danish ambassador to Syria, uh, Syria, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. The international community continues to denounce the chemical attacks this week that occurred in Syria. Rolf, thank you for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're about to talk with uh, Dan Malik from Brock University about Loblaws now announcing that they're going to uh, uh, cover medical marijuana for their co-workers. Uh, We're going to talk about that and then the possibility of an LCBO strike as well. Uh, But Joe wants to say something in regard to Loblaws. Joe, what are your thoughts on all this? Are you there, Joe? Have we got Joe? We don't have Joe? Yes, I'm there. I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. What, What are your thoughts on all this?
3: Well, I work for Loblaws, and uh, the reality—they're making it look like they're doing something for the employees, and then some people would have benefit by that. I mean, I'm 65, but the problem is, once you turn 65 and you work for a company like Loblaws, they terminate all your benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, so they, they you know, and those are the people that would probably qualify or need them more than anything else. The main reason why they're doing it, in my opinion, is because they bought out Choppers Drug Mart, and they want that to pro—they want to process that through their stores. So it's all about money,
0: right? You know, that you bring up an interesting point, Joe, because that's something that has been mentioned. Uh, obviously, when this whole medical marijuana thing first came out, Shoppers Drug Mart uh, said they had absolutely no interest in uh, being involved. Then, of course, uh, later they changed their mind and, and have applied to Health Canada to actually be a part of the medical marijuana system and obviously owned by Loblaws. So you're thinking if we're going to sell it, we've at least got to jump on board 100% and offer it to our employees as well.
3: Yeah, and, and the sad thing is, is the employees that would need it would be the employees that are sixty-five plus. Mm. You know, they might need that, right? I mean, uh, you know, so they're they're not, you know, they give no benefits for senior employees, which is really sad. We tried to put that in our contract and they go, no way, that's going to cost them money. So they they don't care about um, they don't care so much about their employees as much as they care about profit, which is understandable. But at least be straight out, eh?
0: I hear you. Thanks for the call, Joe. Much appreciated. Uh, let's bring in Dan Malik. Dan, of course, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario, also done, uh, uh, published a book as well on uh, drugs in Canada. Dan Malik is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Plug the book uh, on drugs, Dan. I don't oh, have the title. It's called
1: When Good Drugs Go Bad, um, Opium Medicine and the Origins of Canada's Drug Laws. Yeah.
0: Can you imagine when you started writing that book that things yeah. would have turned out the way they had for the opioid addiction problems that there are in Canada or and pretty much North America right now?
4: Uh, I,
1: I don't know if I could have predicted that, but I'm, I'm not surprised in retrospect, given that a lot of the origins of our drug laws were around um, sort of Medic prescription dr- drugs used for prescriptions, right? So opium was a major prescription drug, mm-hmm. and people getting hooked on it that way. So it's very much like deja vu all over again, right? Wow. As far as In a very much more comp- uh, pharmacologically complicated
0: uh, system. I'm going to ask you another very complicated question, which okay. I'm sure you don't have the answer to. How, how okay. do we get out of this? How do we how do we fix this?
1: Uh, yeah, (laughs) you're right. It's got an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah. You got an hour and a half just to get started. Uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be a really uh, difficult, um, challenge. I think that one of the, one of the problems we have is we tend to get stuck in, um, looking for another regulatory way to deal with a problem that in some ways comes about because of the regulatory system we have. And so there's only limited access to these drugs. And so they end up being pushed into the black market so people who have access to them or, or to, who can't get them through normal channels go through illegal ways and people who then have a whole bunch of you know imagine you get you know you're um, imagine for a second you're a pusher <laughs> you're a dealer and you've suddenly got a whole bunch of fentanyl you want to get rid of it right just like any company with a product they want to get rid of it so it ends up getting into other things and so it's it's kind of just strange it's very much. A parallel economy to the normal econ- to the legal economy, but because it's driven by regulations. So, right, if you create more regulations to deal yeah. with regulations, or a problem from regulations, then you may not get out of it. So, we need to get beyond just more regulations on it.
0: Um, Let me but- ask you this, Dan, and then we'll get back to the topic we're going to talk sure. about. But, but what what responsibility does big pharma have in all of this because you look at the drugs like the oxys and so on and so forth these were these were sold to doctors that they were not addictive that this was the miracle drug this was all you know I mean yeah. and and I don't think doctors would have continued to prescribe it the way they had had they figured figured out there was going to be a problem like this 10 years down the road so what responsible does big Ph- what responsibility does big pharma have in all of this
1: well in, in a lot of drug um, in a lot of ways big pharma i'm not going to say that they it's their responsibility entirely when we think about big pharma their job you know to their shareholders is to make money right yeah. but what um what they will do is what's called uh, encourage off um i've lost my word it's encourage um prescribing things for prescribing drugs for conditions that they're not approved for because a physician can prescribe a drug for whatever he or she wants right mm. so so if they, so fentanyl, for example, is a good a good example of a drug that's a very active, quick painkiller used often in surgeries, like from dentistry to on, right? If you do yep. dental surgery in a hospital or something, you might probably not now get fentanyl and, and other surgeries, right? So it's a quick, active painkiller, but physicians can prescribe it for other types of painkilling, right? Mm. Um, so and what the, the, there are stories and some very good evidence about pharmaceutical companies over the years encouraging okay this isn't what it's been approved for but we've found there's some suggestions that this might be useful as well right so there might be that that part of it there might also be physicians um finding good valuable use for it and there could but 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 the blame doesn't just go in one direction, right? So I don't want to be sitting here. It's, it's such no. an easy target to beat on Big Pharma, and, mm-hmm. and there is certainly a responsibility because their job is to make money off these drugs. I
0: just don't feel comfortable when I'm watching a cable show and mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm seeing, talk to your doctor about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, an erection drug is one thing. Mm-hmm. But once they start, you know, getting into, well, stuff that the average person, even if you have this condition, probably doesn't, isn't that qualified to make that that okay. choice. So right. now you've got a, a you know a patient, a customer who comes into a doctor. And goes, well, what about this uh, drug I saw on TV? Why don't I use that?
1: Yeah, yeah and the, and the challenge in that case, even though we don't have direct consumer marketing uh, legal here in Canada, we see a lot of it in the U.S. And there are ways of pharmaceutical industries. Sort of placing, putting the seeds in people's minds about drugs, is that it's an incredible burden on the physicians too. Because you hear of doctors with people coming in with pages and pages of stuff they printed off the internet. Yeah. What about this? And the docs have to kind of look that over, right? So sometimes they have to deal with the quickest information, uh, accessible information they can. Um, Usually, if and this some of this stuff might be outdated because. the, the the medical societies are trying to get on top of it, but usually um, they'll look to like peer reviewed journals and academic journals and what they've found at conferences and that. But the farm, but there's also ways for um, for companies to get their articles sort of ghost written or whatever into right. journals. So that, that that's why a lot of journals now will have was um, was called a. Conflict of interest disclaimer where you'll say, you know, this research may have been funded, was funded by these agencies and stuff like that, right? Mm. But again, you have to – it takes a long time to sort of follow the money, right, or to even follow the credibility. So sometimes docs or – and and even – I have some very intelligent um, colleagues and students who try to figure out <laughs> who really wrote this and stuff like that, and, and it's it's tough to do, so hmm. so there's that component of it as well.
0: All right. Loblaws uh, has announced it's covering medical marijuana for its co-workers. Uh, your thoughts on this, your first reaction? Well, I did hear
1: the, the caller you just had in uh, and his concerns about not being covered by um, for, for people who have retired. Um, it, there, I think there is an element of sort of cynical self-interest because La Blase owns, um owns
4: uh,
1: shoppers, and, mm-hmm. and they are definitely lobbying to have to be a medical marijuana vendor. Um, but that notwithstanding, sometimes good things come out of not necessarily the best intentions, right? So what we're seeing—if you see a big company that is saying we are now going to cover medical marijuana—and it's very—it's for I don't—I didn't hear if you said earlier—it's for very few conditions, it's yeah, for certain it, conditions within MS, and, yep. you know, things that have really been shown to be, um, for medical marijuana to be valuable, for, yeah. although there are many others, right? Um, it, it does open the door, right? So it, it sets a new precedent for, for other companies to do this. And I think that that's a really good thing, because um, it, it adds to some of the legitimacy of Of these substances as medicines and one of the things that I don't think people spend enough time thinking uh, recognizing is that insurance the insurance industry is a very cautious industry so if they're because they don't want to lose money right (laughs) so if they are saying these are are the the research shows that this is useful There is an element of, you know, we've really done our due diligence here because we don't want to lose money. And we want to make sure that we're not just throwing, like, letting anyone have medical cannabis. That's one side. But the other side is also the optics of it. And MS and cancer are high sort of emotion-related. They they get a lot of emotional play, right? So the optics are good for saying we're going to help our our, um, employees with these conditions. Right. So it's so it's a, a real dance of the the, the symbolic um, coverage, along with some valid research, along with the economics of it, all playing together there. Uh,
0: one health plan strategist said insurers won't cover a drug until it passes clinical trials, uh, has been approved by Health Canada, and assigned a drug identification number, DIN. Uh, where are we with medical pot? I mean, we've heard a lot that, you know, there just isn't the evidence there. We've heard that the evidence is there. Where are we on this? And, and does Health Canada recognize this?
1: Um, uh, well, there's, I don't think there's a DIN number yet, but Health Canada does have its own licensing system for medical marijuana. So it's definitely something that is recognized. Um, as you know, with with certain controls on it, right? You know, I mean, the, do we need are, more?
0: Does there does there need to be more medical evidence here? Um, th- more evidence is useful. But the challenge is
1: that the DIN numbers are not applied to what are considered, I, my understanding is, natural health
0: products, right? right. And that's and, when, and this is considered a national it, a natural health product.
1: Yeah, yeah. Until they start, um, you know, extracting and modifying and things like that, it becomes more of a pharmaceutical it very much looks like a pharmaceutical business these days a lot of the medical marijuana companies um and some of them are really trying to legitimize themselves as something other than just a bunch of guys growing weed and Mm selling it. right because they are they're much it's much bigger than that but um yeah there this is a whole new field if you think about the length of time it takes to do uh drug trials and to do um and to do the kinds of controlled on uh, uh the way people are consuming this and, and then the different forms of drugs have to be um, assessed as well. So if you go from smoking it to some kind of oil or things like that, that has to be assessed. The The evidence is very compelling, but um, someone who is really hardcore onto the double-blind placebo-controlled gold standard research can still poke holes in a lot of it just methodologically right to say well you didn't yeah. you know the control group isn't really good or maybe you didn't do this it, i don't want to get into the details but there are ways to poke holes in it and that might be where some people are saying there's not enough compelling evidence but some of the basic stuff is really uh, fundamental like the nausea component yeah. with um with uh with chemotherapy.
0: And they've they've talked about uh, uh, prescribing it for that or allowing that in MS, but that's pretty much where they are at this point. And obviously only a $1,500... uh, coverage per year, which, you know, is quite low, I guess, for, yeah. for, for this sort of thing. Um, where are the insurance companies on this? Man, this opens up a whole other can of worms. Yeah, and, man, you know, I insurance know. companies are always, you know, uh, watching the, the, you know, the, the pennies and dimes and Absolutely. stuff. So ha, 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 this just seems to be opening up a can of worms that will make insurance companies broke.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's the case, though, because, um, you know, insurance companies cover a lot of expensive drugs. Right? I don't know if you hear stories of people's doctors saying, do you have a yeah. uh, drug plan? Because if you have a drug plan, I'll give you the, the non-generic. If you don't, I'll prescribe the generic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, <laughs> I mean, and that's not really nice to the the, the drug com- or the insurance companies, but they're insurance companies, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know where they are, but like I said earlier, I mean, they, they spend a lot of time looking at not just, part of the thing insurance companies are trying to do is sell their plans. So when they add certain things, it's in a good way point.
0: Yeah, makes the to, plan more attractive.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's mm-hmm. why we see other things that also haven't gone through placebo-controlled, double-blind,
3: gold-standard
1: trials, like um, chiropractic and naturopathy. And I'm not, I'm not um, attacking those at all, but I'm saying there are things that appeal to um, the customers, right? Um, but at the same time, they also, like you said, they have to watch the pennies, and so there. That's why I think that's why we see things like. Um, the um, conditions that really uh, ha- there's a lot of good research for the the efficacy of this, but also you don't have huge numbers of people needing it for that. For if it was just for general migraine control, the insurance company will yeah. probably say no, 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 no. We're not going that far because there's a lot of people.
0: Right. So um, you uh, you think that uh, the Shoppers Drug Mart angle uh, there, there's nothing there?
1: No, I think that that's part of it, but I think that. Whether or not it's a cynical ploy to sort of um, legitimize medical marijuana in advance of um, shoppers possibly becoming a vendor of it, it also can have the positive effect of legitimizing it within the insurance uh, uh, business, and that can help people who, who who really need it if they have a drug plan.
0: All right, let's move on to the LCBO. Mm. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm sure lots at the LCBO, and even Kathleen Wynne was hoping this would be uh, how they would dispense medical marijuana, or sorry, recreational marijuana. Yeah. Um, Experts have come up flat against that, saying the two shouldn't be sold uh, within the same outlet, which seems to be cooling off talks of it going into the LCBO, Uh uh, which would actually, you know, when you think about it, would guarantee the life of the LCBO for the next 50 years, considering how archaic (laughs) our liquor laws are. Yeah. Um, Now the LCBO is talking about taking a strike vote, or we'll have a strike vote, uh, Mm -hmm. employees, on April 24th. -hmm. Do Ontarians have an appetite for this, considering how far we've come in the last year or so on this? You mean for uh, for a strike? Like yeah, I mean they're they're saying creeping privatization, whereas everybody's screaming for creeping privatization, except yeah. for them. So yeah. uh, obviously the publics, you know, in favor of creeping privatization here. Uh, yeah. Where does this leave the LCBO and their employees?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's tr- it's really this is a really interesting one because it's very rare that you see a sort of business and labor. Uh, agreeing on something right Um, when it comes to booze often they do but in this case he's got the lcbo if you consider it the business and the union both saying we shouldn't be going so far right so you don't usually see that um but but your question is does ontario have a a, a, a time for this sort of thing Uh, i think that what we're seeing is a pre um, strike vote like a negotiation time, right? Uh, sort of circling of the wagons or whatever you want to call it. it's a terrible term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because um, because they're trying. Well, it's it's the optics of it, not not just the optics of it, but it's also the jargon around it. So they're saying, look, this is this is one of the things that they think is a problem. They also have a lot of um, concerns around. Uh, Scheduling in the workplace and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And when you go into negotiations, and especially when you're getting to the stage of a strike vote, you put all of the big ones on the table, right? And so, and I have a colleague who does labor law who'd be way better to talk about this sort of thing, but this is one of the ones that they're. I think they're kind of seeing how how people react to this. I don't think they have a chance um, to. To stop this creeping private what they call creeping privatization and they also don't recognize or they're not saying the fact that the LCBO is completely in charge of distributing the beer to the supermarket
0: so if there is an LCBO strike there's nothing in the supermarket either right that's my I guess think
1: that that will be the case yeah yeah, yeah. but what which is, is going
0: to make the public even more happy
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, everyone will be thrilled with, with what's going on. And then at that point, it becomes whether the union or the LCBO manages to present their case as a better case to the public, right? Because often people say, oh, that union went on strike and they shut down the business. But remember, it's a collective collective bargaining process, so both sides mm-hmm. didn't agree. Um, but what's also interesting about this union thing is they, they are kind of f- forgetting the fact that there's been private beer sales in ontario since 1927 yeah right because the beer store is private right? it's yeah. not yeah. lcbo so that's not creeping privatization i mean it might be creeping because it's going to the supermarkets and sold by other companies but that's something they sh- really if they're worried about this they should be less concerned about that than, than the beer stores but they're not right um but with they yeah, there's a whole bunch
2: of
0: things. I, Do you I, think I'm, because there's rumors floating that they won't get the contracts to distribute it, to distribute recreational marijuana, that that has them, you know, a little concerned?
1: I don't know if that is the case, because the other part of the um, the, the, the cannabis, the, 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 the committee's report on cannabis, what it said was that in, on a retail System, mm-hmm. they should not be connected. So you shouldn't be able to go into, say, an LC deal and and buy cannabis as well. It doesn't say that from a distribution system or from a control system they shouldn't be connected. Right. Right. And so in other LCDO, words, they
0: can just like the grocery stores, they can control the distribution, just yeah. send it to a private dis- dispensary.
1: They could, and they do have this infrastructure around managing mm-hmm. a contentious substance. Right. Yeah.
0: Yep. So, so, you think much like the uh grocery store is getting beer and wine, and that is supplied by the l c b o it will still be supplied. It just won't be in the stores next to the you know the shelves of liquor
1: I think that that could that could be a, an outcome and i i can't I can't say more than that because um uh, there there's a the big lobby from the distributors and from the manufacturers, i guess themselves the, the medical marijuana people. Who, who want to distribute it themselves and who already do through um, the Internet and things like that, right? So I know that people at the LCBL have been gearing up for, quote, gearing up for cannabis for a while. Whether that was just they didn't know what was going on and so they're, they're preparing in advance, uh, I can't really...
0: Do you think that this, and, and nobody knows how this is going to happen yet, nobody knows mm-hmm. how it's going to roll out across the country, let alone uh, within each province, but do you think it'll be a mishmash in the sense the same way it is with beer and alcohol, in the sense that it'll be completely different in every province, depending on where you are?
1: Yeah, I think there'll be a, a range, yeah. uh, a, a variety of ways of doing this, probably because that public's tolerance for different systems of distribution are different throughout the yeah, throughout the country. Good point. Right? I mean if you've been yeah. in Alberta where it's been a, um, a basically
0: free market liquor distribution. Yeah. You're, not years years to for, yeah, you're not gonna go for yeah you're not gonna go for more be. regulation. Oh. Yeah. Dan Malik has been with us Health Sciences Professor Brock University. Thanks Dan as always much appreciated.
1: Hey, no problem Scott.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred C H L Canadian banks, we were talking about this uh, last week, Canadian banks have come forward to defend themselves over allegations that they are aggressive and using illegal sales practices uh, to try to get you to buy stuff at the bank, meaning various products of, of sort. Uh, you might remember over the last uh, couple of weeks, it started with, I think, one bank and then uh, the rest seemed to jump on board, not the banks, their employees or former employees, saying that... Uh, all, giving us all sorts of anecdotes about how uh, you know they're there not necessarily to do what's best for you, but to try to sell you something, whether it's uh, another Visa card or a MasterCard or what have you, or uh, perhaps get involved in an RSP or a TFSA or any of that as opposed to uh, really caring about what your overall financial plan is. Uh, the banks have obviously have come forward and said that, uh, you know, that isn't the case and have defended uh, these allegations. To talk more about all of this, Michael Beal is with us, Professor in the Department of Economics McMaster University, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Just fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, uh, we have to a little disclaimer here, Michael. Yes, I
4: have to d- disclose that uh, the TD Bank has supported a research group which with which I'm associated, and I don't think that's going to bias anything I say. But your readers should, or your listeners
0: should know that. Oh, that was very good of you to mention. We appreciate that. Uh, is it difficult when you get money from places like this to do research? Does it keep you unbiased? Do you do you still go ahead? Um, This particular support is one of a number of
4: organizations, including um, labor unions, including other groups of employers and employees. Uh, So I don't really think it it affects me very much because, of course, the support is coming from all sides, and it's not uh, in terms of the percentage of total support. Any one organization isn't very large.
0: All right, Michael. Uh, I'm, sur- I'm sure you've read all the reports in-, in what has developed over the last couple of weeks. Employees coming forward saying they're unhappy with, uh, I guess, what their role has uh, turned into. Has the role of the bank changed over years?
4: Yeah, I think it has, although I don't have uh, hard evidence to suggest it, but I think, I think banks have changed. Um, what I find a little interesting when I read all these reports is that people seem to have such great trust in the banks to start with, and I've always thought of the bank as selling me a financial service, and of course, um, they do it in their self-interest,
0: and uh, I, I've never thought otherwise. Why do we think that? Why, why has that been the case for years, that the bank is there to look after us? Um, I don't know. I don't know
4: that it was ever true. It used to be that in a a small Ontario town, uh, the banker was a very important person um, because uh, that person might be the person deciding on whether you get to keep your farm or uh, your mortgage or your business. Um, But I think it was always thought that that person was acting in interest of the bank. and, And I think what's happened a little bit In in the meantime, is that perhaps people have gotten to think uh, from all the advertising and things that that the bank really is on your side, um, and I don't think that we should have changed our opinion. I I think whenever we go into the marketplace, uh, we should always recognize that the people who are trying to sell us stuff are doing so for a reason, and it should be buyer beware in every market.
0: Is it the banks that have done this on their own, or are they just reacting to what the market's doing? And by that, I I mean, you know, uh, at one time, as you mentioned, it was the bank. The bank is is where you did all of your financial, uh, had all your financial dealings, you know, you didn't go to a mortgage broker, you didn't go to a financial advisor, or any of these people that are outside the realm uh, of a bank. So are are they just not trying to cash in on that, so to speak, Uh, because we've changed as Consumers, have we not?
4: Yeah, I think they are. I mean, one of the things is that banks used to make a lot more of their money by simply, in effect, borrowing it from their depositors and lending it to to other people. Uh, now, banks make the majority of their money by selling services, um, credit card services, and other sorts of transaction services. Uh, and so, of course, that's where they're they're putting their their uh, efforts to try to make more money. And more and more, they want to play in the investment space. Um, they have, of course, this retail market. They've got buildings. They have contact with customers there, um, they want to parlay that into selling investment services. And the investment business has always had this sort of side to it. I, I was just thinking about the, the movie about real estate, the Glengarry Glen Ross, I don't uh. know if you remember that movie, mm-hmm. but I, I do think there was always that side uh, to financial business. And basically, the banks have moved in there because they've been allowed to. Um, and you know, in many cases, they probably serve people well. But again, I think Buyer beware is always the most important watchword.
0: It seems there was a bit of a learning curve there for the banks that the customers kind of got away from them. Then they figured out what was going on. So then aggressively went after them. I I can think of my own experience with, with, you know, having a house and, and a mortgage and such. And I remember my mortgage coming due and the bank doing absolutely nothing for me. And I remember I had to jump through hoops just to get an appointment. And it just seemed that I was doing all the work. And, and then somebody – and uh, then, of course, I, I started investigating mortgage brokers and this sort of thing and, and just educating myself and realizing that there was other options and alternatives there. Um, and I remember when the bank called me, a, a reputable bank, a big bank, and, and I said – I remember saying to them, uh, well, you know, I've, I've, I've got a mortgage broker and, and, and you know, they say this – and the lady didn't even try to defend the bank. She just said, well, we can't compete with a mortgage broker. And that was that. That call uh, went and I, I, I never thought anything more about it. Then that was maybe two, three, four years later, I get a call back from my bank because my mortgage is no longer there. Uh, and, and and wanting to interview me and ask me all kinds of questions about their performance. And, and I, I remember saying to that person, You know, I told the lady I was going to a mortgage broker, and she just basically said, nothing we can do for you. We can't beat a mortgage broker. And I remember the person on the other end of the phone saying, they actually said that to you? (laughs) And I said, yeah. So there was a time when they really didn't give a damn, but now it seems they do. Yeah, they're competing. And, you know, there's
4: good sides and bad sides to competition, like in any other market. Uh, And this is part of what we're seeing.
0: So uh, how does the consumer be aware? How does the consumer wade through all of this? Because there are more options now. And with pensions and things being the way they are, we have to do more for ourselves. How do we wade through all that? Well, you have to be vigilant. um, And you have to try very hard to understand what's
4: going on. And sometimes it can be complicated. Uh, But in the end, the basic thing that you should be looking for in any transaction is how the bank or the financial um, intermediary with which you are interacting, how that person or institution is going to get paid, uh, where, the, what sorts of payments are, are going to be made, and you know how much and when, and obviously think about whether there's some other alternative that would save you money and whether it's worth it to change to that alternative.
0: Are you surprised the banks are reacting to this information that came out a couple of weeks ago?
4: no uh, it actually made an appreciable difference in the shares of some of the banks right uh they their stock price fell on this news uh it's bounced back a little since but it's it's quite interesting that the reaction was so strong um, i i don't quite know what to make of the reaction of the banks i i think there's been some of it that's been denial and some of it has been um yeah, this is something we need to work on, and I don't quite know, you know, which bank is where at the moment on this. the The message you can coming out is a little bit confused, which is a little unusual, right? Because normally these people are right on target, uh, but they seem to have been on both sides on this one.
0: Uh, there was uh, one scenario where uh, I, uh, we take we take. Uh I'm, I'm sorry, I'm reading this as I'm speaking to you, but uh, there was one bank executive that said that uh, they take complaints very, very seriously and then uh, put out a number of uh, of all the uh, the various, this is Scotiabank CEO Brian Porter, uh, said we take uh, these sort of allegations very, very seriously. He said in all of the uh, transactions that they did last year, they only got eight complaints, but we acted on those eight very seriously. Is that denial?
4: I don't know, right? I, I mean, I think that when the CBC runs this story and they say that they they got uh, thousands of emails from employees of banks um, saying that they have been pressured into some of these behaviors, which, if not illegal, are certainly borderline, um, that rings true to me. I, I, I do not believe that this story is being exaggerated. On the other hand, um, like I say, in any market, whether it's the market for cars, the market for uh, um, real estate, um, there are abuses. There are people, you have to remember that the person who is doing the selling is not going to have your interests fully at heart. And that's something we all have to remember. So I don't think that we should necessarily be so surprised by the fact that bank employees are feeling that they're putting undue pressure on people because um, that's what they're paid to do. Are you surprised they spoke out against this? Well, not a lot of people have been speaking out on the record. Mm-hmm. A, a lot have been saying that they're, they fear their jobs. I do wonder, I mean, I'm not in the banking business, but I do wonder that these sorts of pressure techniques on the salesperson side, it strikes me as they're, they may be counterproductive. There's a lot of literature that suggests that this sort of um, competitive uh, culture where you try to put one employee against the other can sometimes bump your short-term results but usually hurts your results in the long run. And so I kind of wonder whether the banks have allowed some of their shops to fall into a trap where they've you know, worried so much about the short-term results that they've gotten themselves into a culture, uh, which in the end won't be good for them either.
0: So, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, in the end, this is a business that's trying to sell you a product. That's how they survive. That's how they generate revenue. Every business does that. On the other hand, um, is perhaps creating a sales environment not the right way to go? I mean, the difference between going into a store where the the employees are paid on commission as opposed to salary.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think it may well be that. I don't know because, as I say, I'm not in the banking business. Um, But I think certainly the last month is is evidence for the position that they've tried to overcook things.
0: Have the banks learned from this, or what can they learn from this?
4: I expect that the the banks have not fully adjusted to the fact that their, their revenue source is a lot different than it used to be. Uh, that they have not fully adjusted throughout from top to bottom in their culture, that they basically sell financial services in a a different way, and that a lot of what they're doing is on the consumer credit side in terms of credit cards um, and, and also on the investment side, and that they just need to... Uh, make sure that, again, from top to bottom, their their culture has adjusted to that. So I think they will learn from this. I do think that these banks have been around a long time, and they have adjusted to various sorts of transformations, and they're just going to have to adjust to this one. But in the meantime, the, the news is not good for them. This is a, clearly not a
0: good news story for the banks. So what role should the bank play? What should they be doing? What what would the ultimate banking experience be like?
4: Gee, I don't know, but I think, I think the first thing... Um, they have to do is try to uh, establish a feeling of trust uh, because whoever you're transacting with, if you don't trust the person you're not going to gain you're not going to want to do that transaction you're going to want to find somebody else um, and It does seem to me again that an excessively competitive atmosphere uh, that tries to uh, promote the interests of, of selling a product right now as opposed to a long-term customer relationship. In the end, that strikes me as that's going to be counterproductive, and they, they just have to change the culture. And I suspect what it will mean is a, a f- action from the top um, that has to take some time to filter down through the banks. Because the Banks are huge organizations, mm. right? thousands and thousands of employees. So it will take some time.
0: Uh, do interest rates and in the current economic environment affect this in any way?
4: Uh, yeah, I think they do, and, and that's partly because uh, the, with the interest rates low on both the, uh, the deposit side and on the lending side, um, it does affect their scope for making money uh, from those trans- transactions. And also, I think it's not really recent, but the still the hangover from the financial crisis of 2008 has probably been that our banks have edged towards safety. Um, meaning they 're not taking the chances on the on the lending side to, for for people on, in business who who need to borrow money to to either start new businesses or maintain their businesses i think they 're being probably pretty conservative on that side because they still haven 't quite gotten over that shock and so the you know the end result is, is the low interest rate environment has suggested that that 's not where most of the money is and and much more of the money is on on consumer uh, credit so i mean just compare the the credit rate uh, the the interest rate you pay on your credit card balance, if you have one, as opposed to the, the interest rate you pay on other sorts of borrowing from the bank. And you can see that the credit card rate is way higher. And so obviously that's where there's going to be some attention if you're trying to make money.
0: Uh, you know, we've seen this virtually in all industries. What what uh, what aspect does the educated consumer play in all of this? Because it seems nowadays we have so much information at our fingertips, most of the time we go into these uh, scenarios, we do have a little bit of knowledge under our belt. Uh, yes, as
4: I say, I think uh, the buyer beware aspect of this is the most important, and that I do believe that educated consumers are going to be part of the solution to this, because I think banks that just rely on all their customers not knowing better, those banks aren't going to succeed. Are Canadians suspicious of their banks, do you think? I don't have any evidence on that point. Uh, I certainly think that this story has struck a nerve. Um uh, I do think that people have been complaining about bank fees for a long time. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's likely, I think, that, uh, that the degree of suspicion towards banks is a lot lar- larger than it was before. But again, I don't have any firm evidence.
0: Is there an opportunity here for an aggressive bank that might be a bit smaller but wants to take advantage of this? Uh, is there a way to outservice the other?
4: Well, we've been there before, and there was some inroads in the banking industry with some of the people who are moving more online. Um, I've always wondered why the credit union movement doesn't get a larger uh, market share than they do.
0: Yeah, you'd be surprised considering when you think of things like mortgage brokers and financial planning. Have they grown as much? Not as much as you'd think. Uh, do you think that's suspicion over what happened in 2008 and people just want to have uh, be associated with a larger ins- institution, Repu- more reputable?
4: I, I just don't know. I think that uh, when you when you look at it, the banks have a pretty good hold. Uh, they they participate in in lots of different ways in the economy. Uh, they advertise a lot. They are the ones who have the the largest bricks and mortar presence. You know the corner in Dundas where I live, where there's a bank on each corner. Yeah. Um, I think they're they're going to remain an important part of our financial system. Um, I don't think there's a way around that, or maybe even there should not be a way around that. But I do think that maybe the time has come for them to try to um, meet the competition in a slightly different way than they've been doing.
0: Do you think we're going to see less bricks and mortar, less less outlets
4: over time? But it's 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 a drip drip drip. It's the the small centers that are losing you know one bank at a time, a little bit of consolidation. I noticed noticed a couple of branches. Um, closed in Dundas, they went to just a single operation. Uh, So yes, because people do more of their work online, they don't need as as much of a bricks and mortar presence. Uh, But I don't think it's going to happen in any sudden fashion.
0: Michael Beal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. Canadian banks have come forward to defend themselves over allegations they are aggressive when it comes to their customers. Michael, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.